Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest show. Um, this is going to be more of an open discussion around the responsibility of data and that data does not necessarily equal the true lived experience. So to have that conversation is Araceli, Dan and Ilahi from the team and I will be lurking in the background mostly. So Araceli, over to you. Great. Thanks, Josh. Um, so I'm going to set up the scenario for the listeners and then going to bring in Ilahi and Dan to add their, perspe- uh, their perspectives. So I'm going to use two case studies that are quite different, but yielding very similar results, specifically gaslighting and tiger communities. Um, so the first one is the long haul uh, coveters. So that community was started by a Slack that was created by a community called Body Politic. And they were... Um, creating a database of people within their community, um, which is a BIPOC um, queer community, that were experiencing symptoms that were not being categorized as COVID, yet they were getting sicker. And yet in some cases, they were testing positive for COVID. In some cases, they were not. And yesterday, I read a specific um, case of one of the people that are that are now um, taken part in a survey, um, and she, the way she explained her experience was so similar to Angela Fonzo's experience over at South Hall. So this um, young person, she was 22 years old. She was living in Barcelona. Her entire um, her friend, sorry's entire office had gotten COVID and she had expressed that she had spent a lot of time with this said friend and would have presumed that she would have contracted um, the virus. Yet when she tested, she tested negative and, and they told her that she didn't have COVID. However, she kept getting sicker and sicker to the point where she was fainting um, when she was taking a shower. It was even very difficult for her to brush her teeth. Um, She ended up going um, to the United States where really the gaslighting continued. And it was, what was, what was interesting from that story to extract is how data or our even instrumentation and our methods of sometimes that we use in that we use in science or in data or in medicine can ignore the experience that is happening to a person not only that but we negate that experience right so because so many of these people that are no longer called covid aren't necessarily, some of them are, but not all of them are experiencing the classic um, symptoms of COVID. They're simply being told you don't have it or because they're being tested and showing up negative, they don't have it. There isn't that humility to say, well, maybe there's something wrong with the testing or how we're testing, or maybe there is something that we haven't quite captured in terms of the symptomology. And then people are sent home basically with a, your data or our data, and the way we are looking at this phenomena doesn't match up. Therefore, your experience is invalid. And which brings us to the next case study, which is Angela. So Angela 
is a member of a community that has now coined itself as Cash, which are, they live in um, uh, in South Hall and they are experiencing environmental injustice through the absorption of toxin air pollution coming from a brownfield site. And this very similar thing happened or is happening with that community, which is that Public Health England did a data study that concluded that the symptoms that they were experiencing, i.e. that they were feeling short of breath, that they were getting nauseous, that they were getting headaches, um, and then from there it progressed to hospitalization, increased asthma attacks, that all of it had nothing to do with the Brownfield site. And, it, and, and no matter how many uh, people from the community continued to log their symptoms, continued to um, log the increased of symptomology, um, they were still being told that the data didn't match their experience. Therefore, their experience wasn't valid. And so this is what we want to discuss. So we have Dan, who's coming from very much a data uh, scientist background, as well as a neuroscientific background, and Alahi coming from an experiment uh, design. Or that's the perspective um, that I want him to talk about. So I'm going to set it up first to Alahi to talk about how do we do better science in terms of experiment design where number one, we're not quick off the mark to only rely on qualitative data and negate the lived experience and two, where the lived experience can dialogue with quantitative data. So over to you, E. Yeah, it's a big question. It's quite, quite an important one because um, it tends to be that especially in, in science, uh, so you, you tend to always rely on one or the other and not really understand that both have their benefits, right? Um, and it's completely true that, that, yes, quantitative data is extremely good in terms of it's uh, completely, you, it's replicable, it's based on statistics, so it's very objective and rational. Um, and it's a great way of sort of testing a hypothesis. So um that's sort of the benefits but at the same time it also has its downsides in terms of because you're so removed from certain situations or contexts it can get very easy to sort of uh get caught in a sort of like confirmation bias where you might already have an idea um and you'll be so adamant that that idea is the correct one that you're not open to sort of new the generation of new uh hypotheses or, or ideas uh, in terms of the relationship between phenomena. Um, and that's where I think qualitative really comes in and understanding the lived experience because um, it, it sort of, it's by, by sort of delving into the, um, the real world and sort of getting on the ground and, and, and meeting people and understanding uh, a phenomena like, for example, in Southall where they had the uh, air pollution um, health concerns and rightly so. Um, it sort of helps to clear this ambigu ambiguity or, so, or sort of contradictions that you might find when you're just looking at the data on, on a spreadsheet. Um, and it can, it's extremely useful in terms of generating new ideas and um, hypotheses about why certain phenomena are happening. And you can see exactly with the long call COVID um, case study where, yeah, they're, they're, it's now becoming, a, it's now being considered as a, um, a sort of, independent uh, aspect of the experience um, and that only happens through qualitative exploration you have to like 
get into the nitty gritty and really it provides the, the rich contextual details um, that quantitatives can sometimes uh, miss out on, or it, it generally does miss out on, um, because you're just so far removed from the phenomena you're, you're interested in. Yeah, and how much, um, and this maybe we can bring start weaving in Dan, because what from what you were saying, um, E, that I wonder if it's something to do as well with culture, right, that with, with our experience of South Hall, we kept pushing because we had to in terms of we were working for Angela and well, they, we had no choice in terms of ignoring her experience, but it mm. takes more time, right? It takes, well, probably twice as much because you're having to, you having to deal with the complexity of, of human experience. So Dan, is there something that you want to add to that in terms of the culture and even the, um, the ethics of, how to gather the data and then understanding the limitations of the application of that data um, precisely to go to Alahi's uh, point of, you know, where, where we, where we draw the line and go, this, this is where the qualitative or the quantitative, sorry, data ends. And we have to now start bringing in the qualitative data. Yeah. So I actually, while Alahi was talking, really thought about how you know because one of the things i've done is supporting master students in terms of writing their dissertations and things like that and usually people think because of the neuroimaging background and whatever that i i'd mainly be there to make sure the statistics is right and make sure that it's you know everything kind of works out but i tell people that i explicitly can't do that if I'm not bought in on what your introduction is because I mean a lot of people they kind of think you just rush through it you put some numbers down you say this is why I measure this and you go on and you spend time creating the actual insight but the introduction your ideal introduction and ideal flow of research should be that there's a whole big world out there of complexity and you purposely chosen to narrow in on a certain set of uh, metrics and this is the scale of what those metrics can do and how they fit back into a bigger picture. And the thing is, um, when you start doing applied work, it obviously becomes tricky because it's not as much of a vacuum as an academic research paper, but you've still got to keep that in mind. The fact that the context of what has been done before matters. If, they, if no one's ever collected this data before, you can't just take the, uh, the people who it's for out of the picture and say, well, based on just my inkling and my feeling, these numbers are going to have this impact on your life and why you can get help or you can't get help, why you're considered a COVID patient or not. The general, as you said, culture about it should be, when I really look at what is the precedent, what has existed already, the, if, if, it's, if it's really complete and I'm only kind of replicating something but changing something very little, that's one thing. If you're being more experimental, if you're working with a paradigm that shifts every day and every week, and this is especially true for something like COVID, that there's no there's no template and book on COVID to say these are all the pathologies, this is all the ways it can happen. It mutates in real time. So something that would have been not COVID by a test you've made two months ago, you know, or might might be COVID in three months when you test, you know, with a different setup. And so I think the point of these two examples that you brought up is the fact that like 
especially when you're dealing with grown adults, but even if you deal with kids, people can tell you that people will know generally whether they're feeling something. Like if they haven't been primed to tell for them to be saying like, you're most likely going to have this illness and then it kind of itself fulfills. If someone comes in and says, I don't usually cough like this. I don't usually wheeze. I don't usually get sweats. I don't usually vomit like this. Even if your test says it's not COVID. If your job is to be a medical professional and to help people, you want to solve that symptom. And if that means you have to put these people into a side kind of study and a side kind of understanding to say, we're just going to work on you getting better, then that's what you need to do. But the idea of rejecting them and saying they didn't fulfill what would be COVID. So most likely, you know, you're not sick or you're not sick in any way that we can help you. It's like you, you think back and like a year ago, would you have rejected that person as not being sick then? You know, yeah. would you like, would you like, if someone says I'm like, no, there's no situation where someone's saying, for instance, they're vomiting or they're fainting, that you should in your right mind as a health professional say you're probably fine, you know, because most people that have long-term conditions probably know about it. And if they don't, that's what you should be checking. Like there should be a list of, you know, even from a neuroscience standpoint, if someone faints, if they're dizzy often, if they're vomiting, if they're whatever, there's probably a series of things you can do, a series of scans, a series of lifestyle questionnaires, et cetera, family history that you can go to, to say, you know, maybe we need to actually profile you a bit differently. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you said about what problem you're solving. Because again, that's another, certainly that's a caveat that us at Centric we take is that the data is only relevant to the problem. And because the problem that we were trying to solve in cash was exactly what you just said about the COVID, which is why are they getting sick? Why are they getting sick now? And why are they the only ones getting sick in this way? And once you open yourself up to that, then you get to start asking other questions that may be above and beyond because we ran into that right that we also ran the data study and it wasn't it wasn't making any sense in terms of what they Mm. were experiencing um but then we had to go above and beyond that because you could we couldn't negate and it would be unethical to to negate as you said when someone is expressing um a symptom that they've never that they've never experienced before, which brings me to the next bit, and it would be great to hear from both you and Elahi on how or what would be the role of Centric in terms of citizen intellectualism or activist intellectualism, and by that I mean that science and data or data and technology more recently reigns in this ether of supremacy, right? That um, we know more and we know better because we have data. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and that we, again, we would negate someone that isn't coming from necessarily that language. Yet, as you said, a person lives with their body, right? So if a person is telling you, this isn't how my body usually does things, or this isn't how my body usually responds. We have to listen to that. So what would you guys say to, to building tools or maybe building methods in 
understanding communities better, being able to get there quicker for the communities and not gaslighting them? Yeah, I think um, it's it's sort of it's sort of a twofold thing because the the communities and the individuals in the communities um, are both sort of the experts of their own experience and also the most important part of of the data set right they're, they're, they're the most important data in terms of understanding what's going on like we so i think it's it's quite funny how yeah like scientists and and public health experts can sit in their ivory towers and sort of look down on it but they are completely reliant on these people's experiences so i think giving them a bit more empowerment in terms of not just intellectually but i just think practically in terms of how they can go about uh how, how they can go about to collect this data in an easier manner um and i think that's something that centrics centric has a role to do is sort of just um sort of breaking down the boundaries to to this sort of citizen citizen science um and it can be a mutually beneficial relationship where they are able to understand their experience better and also benefit whilst we are also able to sort of interpret it and and provide uh or facilitate this sort of interventions in in terms of public policy um uh, to sort of fix a phenomena if it, if it is having negative uh, health outcomes or impacts mm. and dan do you want to add something specifically there to the data gathering and also the interacting with different communities yeah so this reminds me of some work I've also been doing with a with a YSYS on the Know Your Data um, that's trying to talk about getting baselines on for diverse diversity and inclusion. And the part that I continue to reiterate is about the trust that needs to be developed for people to be able to have a culture of sharing the right data and and trusting that when you collect it it's going to go to something that will be neutral to beneficial for them and that they get to see the result or they're part of the result and that there's accountability because right now what some of these case studies we've seen eccentric have really shown is that there's not that much trust to certain local authorities and there's not that much trust to certain private institutions and no you will never get clear and good and useful data for people that will help people if they don't trust you because you'll do it without their consent in a way that you say, oh, it's all here. I know your movements. I know how often you've been on the phone, et cetera. And they don't even know what question you were trying to answer by doing that. And you've just shown that you have it. And that's, that's not a way to collaboratively, collaboratively build a solution because it's the same way Like it would be weird at the GP. You went to the GP and you thought you were going in for your back and they just say, well, actually you also um should be doing this and you have this and you're like where, where did you even get that insight like why would you even have that question like why would you say that in front of my friends or my mom or whatever like you really i think the role centric can have is saying how can we be on one side applicable and making these common grounds and these links so a local authority can say what can i do to do better well yeah you can buy into this thing where people ask a question or submit something they're not going to get gaslit is actually going to go towards an aggregate 
that you get to go to private companies, get to go to bigger authorities and say, hey, 100 people have shared various things about themselves that will show that my constituency has this need. And I think if their centric had been on the path we're at now and had some sort of stake maybe a couple years before now, the way some of this COVID situation might have been understood and resolved might have been a bit different, or not even might have, it would have been a bit different because now we've just broken into more localized interventions. But at the same time, some of the local authorities are saying, but they didn't actually talk to us. That yeah, they they're not giving us one national strategy now. They're giving us individual, but we haven't been able to go to our constituents and say, hey, in two weeks, restaurants, you're probably going to close. And what's this going to mean for you? You know, gyms is going to close. What is it going to mean from a health standpoint? What are mitigations you can tell the people that use your gym for mental or physical health so that they can actually mitigate? Like there was no conversation. You know, and so until those conversations and those links happen and there's data to back it. So maybe a gym can say, hey, this is the reason why we should have an intervention that's remote or in a park that brings 60 percent of our people, because the data shows that if they were at home, this is what would happen and it would become an NHS pipeline problem. So it's like it's, it's, so the, all these things are really complicated. But what we can do is the research side and the linking side. So I'm going to jump in, even though I said I was going to just be lurking in the background, as I typically do on our uh, <laughs> sessions here. But what's what's really jumping to the fore and hearing you both talk um, and obviously spending time with you guys is that there, there's an overt quantification of people rather than actually choosing to try and listen to people. Yep. And there's, I think that's where the conversation, and maybe I might instigate part of your existing conversation here about the decolonizing of data. Because, you know, one of the early measures of, I think it was gross national product was when uh, Cromwell decided to quantify the national output of Ireland to identify what was Ireland bringing of value to the United Kingdom and the British Empire. And so there is still this just long, long history of quantifying and overtly quantifying from a chosen set of indicators um, in order to extract, oh, well, this is good, this is bad, and we move forward this way. And, uh, you know, as a non-scientist, but someone who's spent enough time in science uh, to understand that there's still an overt desire to quantify people through your own decisions. And listening earlier on, the idea about um, the ego of scientists, but also that like, the humility to admit you're wrong appears to be such an impossible thing to do with science. But when it comes to the question of how do we, you know, what's the best way to decolonize uh, health data in this way like how do we start listening to people better so I'm just wondering and I'm opening it up to anyone who wants to kind of jump in because I know I'm just coming with my opinion but the opinion coming with a question that what would you say are the best ways to turn that question on its head how do we stop using citizens as a form of lab rat when it comes to epidemiological related studies and how do we actually allow citizens to amplify their voices you know any form of information is a piece of data it doesn't just have to be coming through an app or an excel spreadsheet yeah that's a really good word the decolonization um because that was going to be the next one of the next points that i thought we should look at is in terms of methods um Yes, science has had a long, long history of being led by specifically 
white, wealthy males. And yes, your, your data points that you would create in terms of the questions that you would have, it would be from your perception. And I think that's where the problem still continues, if I could find the crux of it, is that when you go and design a survey, are you being simply extractive and exploitative, or are you going to be collaborative and a active listener, right? So are you asking questions that the person at the other side is going to feel listened, or are you just wanting to take data in just a very extractive and objectified, in an, sorry, in, and in an objectifying way? Because that's what was so interesting as a case study. And I do recommend that everybody go and look at body politic. Um, they are mainly on Instagram and their study on long haul COVID is in a Google doc, but you can access it through Instagram is that they, that they made it a community. So the survey that ended up being created was by people experiencing long haul COVID. And most of the time, it's an outsider creating a survey to try to understand the community. So anything that you guys want to add to that, Elahi and Dan? Yeah. Um, so there is this sort of uh, methodology, um, which is quite big in the uh, epidemiological and I guess like the, the public health um, field. Um, so they call it community-based uh, participatory, participatory research, the CBPR sure um and that sort of is the idea that yeah so there is this unequal or unequal um power relationship between these sort of western science or scientific institutions and the their research subjects being in these communities and the idea of this sort of method is that you are uh, creating a more equal uh power relationship between the two stakeholders um and you sort of inc uh in terms of the decision-making process and within the actual overall research uh, process. Um, so the community uh, is just as engaged in sort of the data collection, interpretation, and also implementation of interventions, uh, be what they are to create any social change. Um, and I think that's sort of gonna be the, that's one of the most sustainable sort of um, processes. I think that will, will, will start to become the norm Particularly, particularly in the built environment um, industry or uh, sector, um, if we are to sort of cr not only understand at the scientific level the complexity of the relationships within particular urban environments, but also to ensure that the policies and interventions that are implemented are sustainable and they are actually effective when they are implemented. Nice, really good um, example, um, Alahi. Um, Dan, do you want to add anything? Um, I think to be honest, no, I think that that covers a lot of a lot of the sustainability side of it. And I think what people don't really realize is how much of methodology and of common science was made in the mid twentieth century through very still not that inclusive uh, researchers and test subjects and. You know, if you ever read them um, in Inferior by a Angela Sani, um, she opens the first chapter or so about the fact that even women weren't included in research about people 
in terms of like medical health and all that until like the 90s. Um, and so a lot of things that, that are culturally, you know, I mean, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, there's a lot of things that we culturally think have lasted a long time that were literally created between World War II and maybe like the 70s that we think are like part of how humans are, part of how science works, part of how whatever that it, that just isn't a fact for people that are not the same group of undergraduate college students. And so the thing is, I think this model, as um, Allah was saying, really does allow that in the future, things are actually bespoke the way they need to be. So that if you're saying that this community in 2030 that has mostly kids and elderly, that is of a mix, wherever, there's a baseline of what they should be testing, but some of it's left open to say, there is actually no silver bullet right now. The best mm -hmm. thing we can do is devote some time and resources to just figuring out where you're at and maybe building a culture where you have a baseline of understanding about yourself so that when something weird happens, we can just make maybe do a quick research to say, what is the actual quantifiable difference? And then put it in your hands to say, is this something of value that you actually want to change? I mean, smoking, we did a lot of research in smoking, but it's not like people, everyone stopped, but they at least they know more about what it can do to people because smoking doesn't make everyone get lung cancer. Not everyone that smokes is going to die of smoking. Like there's, there is base because when you understand the culture and the research behind it, people can make their decisions, but you get to a point where it's actually curated towards the problem you're trying to solve and not just this binary, like, if you smoke for one month, <laughs> this is going to happen and this is your trajectory. And we're just going to carry that to every community that's ever mm -hmm. existed. Yeah, I think what you just said about creating the culture, and certainly that is something that we are trying to do at Centric, is, um, is creating a culture of inclusivity and of... Um, just flat hierarchy, right? And and it's not because of some, you know, Silicon Valley adoption of 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 no hierarchy, but because <laughs> we do know that 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 works. So, for example, Centric has started a People's Council, which is a council of people that are going to advise Centric that are made up of citizens not necessarily working in the public health industry but are concerned citizens or citizens that are concerned with their health to allow um, us to be in constant dialogue and the way that hopefully i mean we're gonna get her on a podcast that angela feels we worked with her is that we made her the lead scientist. Um, mm. She's the one who conducted the survey. I mean, it was a happy accident, but I think that is a method that we will continue with Centric. Um, yeah. And she is the one who, who led us in terms of, is this the right methodology? Is that the right methodology? She was logged into our working lab book, just like every other member of our um, lab. So she was constantly um, updated in real time of what we were discovering and equally we were in real time communicating with her in terms of is this are you in agreement agreement sorry with how we are exploring the science does it match up to what your community needs and yeah. yes that does take more time um, <laughs> but it is I think time um, well spent and then so we have just a teeny little bit of time so maybe just quick one minute nuggets on your interpretation of the phrase 
moral intelligence, which is something that, again, it's not just about scientific intelligence, but we should also have moral intelligence as we approach these communities. I guess. I mean, uh, I, oh, yeah, you go ahead then. Oh, uh, sure. Um, yeah, moral t- intelligence, I believe, is a case of, like you said about the flat hierarchy and everything like that, you can only get moral intelligence when you have the ability to enact on moral intelligence. So someone that's in the bottom of the ladder, their morality doesn't actually matter that much in the bigger ecosystem because they have no ability to do anything or make any change. So we can only get moral intelligence from people in equitable or higher power being able to ask themselves the question of, am I the right person to do this? And what is the responsible option to do this? And is there someone better equipped to do this? Mm, nice one. Alahi? Mm. Yeah, I think it's 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 a uh, it's sort of a mix of uh, humility on the scientific side, and also um, empathy or compassion. I would say more empathy, um, and trying to understand that yes, we we on this we are sort of removed from certain situations, and that makes us the the layman. So and and that is that is sort of the the starting point from us to sort of reach out to communities and include them in this decision-making process and research process. Yeah, great. Okay, well, I think that's a good place to end it, that yes, us as scientists, we are laymans in terms of somebody else's lived experience, and we should have the humility to approach it as such. Okay, cool, guys. Thank you so much. No worries. I'm just going to add that this was uh, an open discussion about data and the lived experience. And this is one of the things that we're going to be covering next year in a special program that Centric is running for uh, industry-based organizations. And to better understand how do you even look at health data before you make the wrong decision and end up going down the wrong channel. So this was an open discussion. We're going to be doing a lot more work on this uh, in the new year. So do get in touch with us if you think that's interesting. Also, uh, join our People's Council if you're interested in health. Health, um, or anything to do with health, um, send us an email at hello at centric. Um, hello at the centric lab.com. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you like the work that we do and this podcast and want to hear more of them, you can help support us in the production of it by heading over to our Patreon account at patreon forward slash centric lab. The link is in the bio of this podcast. And you can donate whatever you can per month. It all goes towards helping our team produce the research, producing these podcasts and all the other work that we endeavor to do to help fight for health justice and improve the lives of people living in cities around the world. Thanks very much. I'll speak to you soon.